Welcome to Epistemic Media, the podcast where the truth matters, and so do you. I have with me today Daniel Akande. He is an author, debater, blogger, YouTuber, and fellow meme lord, specializing in presuppositionalism from a philosophical point of view. Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Sayomi. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So, uh, many people may not be familiar with you, but if they are, they're probably going to know you as an author. You've written a couple of books, isn't that right? Yeah, that is correct. All right, and uh, what are they called? Um, the first one's called The Folly of Unbelief, and the second one, which I released just recently, is called If Logic, Then God. Excellent. And I have had a chance to peruse both of them, and they are phenomenal books. I could not recommend them enough as an introduction to presuppositional apologetics. Now, I've got a couple of questions for us just to kind of get the ball rolling. Now, the first one is, what is revelational epistemology? The basics or the basic explanation of revelational epistemology can be found in Van Til's fantastic work, which is um, a survey of Christian epistemology. So I, I can't pull out a quote here, but I'm going to try to explain it as simply as I can. Revelational epistemology basically is an epistemological framework. It's an epistemological approach that stipulates that all human knowledge occurs and is made possible by divine revelation. And so Van Til says that God created the world, God created man, created the mind of man and revealed himself to man and revealed things like logic, which uh, man's mind uses to function. And so all that, the creative activity of God makes it such that man exists in a revelational context. And it is that revelational context that makes knowledge possible. So revelational epistemology, simply speaking, is the thesis that all human knowledge is dependent on God and his revelation. And this would be in direct contrast to, say, a Thomistic natural theology? Perhaps not in direct contrast, but a, a, a Thomistic natural theology does not... Um, affirm revelational epistemology. So um, a, a Thomist would want to prove the existence, the existence of God apart from any special revelation. And so in that sense, it rejects the necessity of revelation and revelational epistemology. And so, yeah, it, they, they do come in, uh, in, in opposition and what would you say the transcendental argument for God is? Well, the transcendental argument for God is, is basically a, a philosophical argument that tries to prove the existence of God by examining the preconditions of intelligible human experience, right? And so in the context of presuppositional apologetics and Van Tilian, apologetics. We try to prove the truth of Christian theism by showing that it is necessary for intelligible human experience, things like knowledge and 
science and morality and logic, etc. For our experience to be the way it is, that is, for it to make sense, for it to, for us to be able to gain knowledge, we there are certain things that must be true. And those things that must be true are called the preconditions of human intelligible experience. So, so those things must be true in order for our experience to be intelligible and to make sense to us. And that's why we call them preconditions. Are we allowed to just assume these preconditions or do we actually need to justify them in order to use them? Right. And so th that's where the uh, transcendental analysis comes in, right? So if there are certain things that must be true in order for our experience to be the way it is, that is to be coherent and uniform, we have to ask ourselves, what view of the world makes such things true? And so th that's where transcendental argumentation comes in, because what we're trying to say is that the Christian and the unbeliever have differing stories about reality and man and God, etc. So the Christian story, for example, begins with God. As he says, God exists and God revealed himself and God revealed himself to man through the Bible and special revelation and through his works in history and through the person of Christ, etc., etc. So that is the Christian story. That is what the Christian believes. The atheist or the unbeliever believes something totally different. And so to settle the dispute, what the Van Tilden is saying is that the Christian story is able to make sense of these so-called preconditions of intelligibility. So both the Christian and the unbeliever assume these preconditions when they live in their daily lives. And the question then is which story, which worldview makes sense of them? It is not enough to just assume them. We have to ask, why is the world this way? There is no reason why experience should be intelligible to us. And once you have, and there are certain views of reality that makes it such that our experience would be totally different. And so we have to ask what provides the basis for these preconditions of intelligible experience. And basically we argue that only the Christian worldview can provide that. Now onto your books, uh, you are, I wouldn't say a prolific author quite yet, but you have released two books in what, two years? Oh yeah. Well, in, in, in basically a year, basically, because the, the first book was released in October last year. And the second was released um, last month. So uh, within the space of a year, I have released um, two books. So yeah, I don't know if you call up. that prolific. Uh, soon to be <laughs> prolific, perhaps. If you keep up this pace, we'll have a whole library by, uh, by your life's end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, so your first book, The Folly of Unbelief. Uh, what does it mean uh, when, when you say that unbelief is irrational? Right. Okay. Yeah. Because that is basically one of the, the, the major theses of the book, right? I, I, I was basically what I was trying to argue in that book was that there is no rational basis for unbelief. And, and this affirmation is basically in accordance with scripture, right? Because for example, Romans one, Paul says that um, the unbeliever is without excuse. And if you look at the Greek, what, what he says there is that 
the unbeliever is without a rational apologetic, basically. So he has no rational defense for his unbelief. And that is what I try to point out in the book. So for me, philosophically speaking, when I say unbelief is irrational, what I mean is that if the unbelieving position is true, then there is no basis for any rationality or knowledge or logic or anything. And if that is the case, then belief in unbelief cannot be rational because if it were true, then there is no rationality. So it's a kind of self-defeating position. And that is what I try to point out in the book. Hmm. So what you're not saying is that unbelievers are incapable of being rational or incapable of knowing, but just that they are inconsistent when they are knowing, when they are rational, because that only comports with the Christian worldview. Exactly. Yeah, that is totally correct. And so your second book, If Logic, Then God, is basically just a continuation of that argument? Yeah, yeah. It's, they, they follow the same um, general um, principle, right, to show that unbelief has no basis for rationality, right? And so uh, the second book is focused specifically on logic. So I'm, it's, it's, a, it's kind of my... Um, it's it's my way of kind of furthering the discussion about Christianity, logic, and unbelief, right? So for many decades, philosophers, Christian philosophers, have tried to establish the existence of God from logic. And this is basically my way of presenting a transcendental approach to that argument. And yes, I try to show that um, logic presupposes Christian theism. So if you had to boil down the the basic arguments of your first book, how would you put it? Okay, so the the, um, the folly of unbelief is is um, demarcated into three segments, that is, for the argument. So I, 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 I address the arguments pertaining to the object-object relationship I also address arguments pertaining to the object-subject relationship and then arguments pertaining to the subject-subject relationships. So that is how I group the arguments. And if, if I, there are over several chapters I go into these, but if I were to boil it down, basically is that um, an unbelieving worldview that is an autonomous epistemology that rejects the revelation of God basically has no foundation for knowledge. And the way I show that is to show that if the unbelieving position were true, then there would be no intelligible relationship between the objects of knowledge. There would be no intelligible relationship between the subject and the object of knowledge. And there would be no intelligible relationship between the subjects of knowledge. That's the basic um, approach. Right. And you, you've said that very concisely for those of us who are initiated and understand what subject and object mean. Would you be able to define those terms a little bit less abstractly for the average listener? All right. So it's really simple, right? So when we, when we talk about knowledge, there are two key components. There is the subject of knowledge and there is the object of knowledge. The subject of knowledge is basically you and I, right? The, the humans, the people who know things. Mm -hmm. 
And the object of knowledge is the things which are known or the things which are to be known. So um, a table is an object of knowledge and I am a subject of knowledge because when we say, I know that this table exists, the subject is the I and the object is the table, right? So in any knowledge transaction, as Van Til would put it, there is always a subject of knowledge and an object of knowledge. Those two are necessary for knowledge to obtain. All right. This is sounding slightly Kantian, the, the thing in itself. We do get a lot of flack. Uh, we are accused of being neo-Kantians in a lot of respects, being followers of Van Til. Would you give any pushback against that with this object-subject distinction? I'm just going to point out that um, the, the distinction in itself is not Kantian. I think any person can agree that there are there is a subject of knowledge and there is an object of knowledge. Where the um, where the Kantian idea comes in is when you demarcate the subject and the object of knowledge, right? So when you say the subject exists in total abstraction from the object, that is with no way to get to the object of knowledge. And when we say that, it may sound Kantian, but what Van Til is saying, what Van Tilian wants to say is that that Kantian divide is unavoidable if one does not presuppose Christian theism. So basically, we are taking Kant's argument and using it as a, a, a weapon against unbelief. We're saying that, look at what Kant has argued. We're saying that you cannot avoid the skepticism which Kantianism entails unless you hold on to revelation and scripture, right? So basically we're saying you can either choose revelation or epistemology or you end up like Kant. And in that, I would absolutely agree. Van Til using Kantian language to dismantle existentialism does not make him Kantian himself. Exactly. Well, hopefully, this conversation will reach enough ears to finally dispel this notion that's constantly brought up, but we'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm.